0: This episode contains descriptions of violence that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Please take care of yourself and reach out for help if you need it. This is a Clark University podcast.
1: Could yesterday's demonic possession be today's postpartum psychosis? There's no way to answer this question with any kind of authority, but it's a a compelling one because a lot of things change over the course of hundreds of years, but hormones don't.
0: Diane Berg is an English professor at Clark University who has studied popular representations of domestic violence. In late January, headlines from a tragic incident in Massachusetts struck a chord with Diane. Lindsay Clancy is a Duxbury mother accused of killing her three children and attempting to take her own life. Diane has found similarities between this family's loss and stories of women from her research. Here, Diane explains what happened to Margaret Vincent and her children in England in 1616.
1: This woman, Margaret Vincent, uh, she was a mother of three children. She was, by all accounts, an upstanding citizen you know, Protestant, middle class, loving mother, obedient wife, et cetera, et cetera. She came into contact with some Catholics, and it was basically illegal to be Catholic in England in the early 17th century. She, according to the pamphlet, was influenced by them in this kind of nefarious way to convert to Catholicism. She talked to her husband about this. She was convinced that if they didn't convert to Catholicism, they were all going to be damned. And she nagged at him and railed at him and he wouldn't have it. And eventually she waited for a day when he was out of the house and she sent the servant away and she murdered two of her three children. And the youngest one only escaped because it was away at the wet nurse. Her plan was to throw herself down a well and the servant girl came back and caught her before she could do that. And ultimately she was tried and hanged, but she later said that she was the victim of demonic possession. She killed the children because she was trying to save them. She was doing a terrible thing for what she thought was a good reason and later admitted that she was deluded.
0: Researching Margaret Vincent, Diane immediately remembered Andrea Yates, a mother struggling with mental illness who killed her children in 2001. Despite happening hundreds of years apart, the cases in their depictions were similar. She had
1: five children under the age of 70. She was homeschooling all of them. She had been told previously that uh, she shouldn't get pregnant after, I think, the second or third child because she was so prone to postpartum depression and she was on a number of psychotropic meds. The way the press portrays it, you know, is she a monster or is she a victim, right? Should we feel sorry for her or should we string her up? In Texas, they initially convicted her of murder, and uh, she would have based the death penalty, but the jury didn't go for that. They sentenced her to life in prison, but on appeal, that was commuted, and now she's in a psychiatric health facility. The resonances between these two cases really struck me. Also, the rhetoric around them, the way they were represented by the media of their time. In Margaret Vincent's case, it's a, it's a pamphlet. It's got a very kind of censorious, didactic tone, talking about how easily women are led astray, women are weak, we're easily prey to, you know, falling into sin, bad influences, et cetera. My students are always hearing me talk about this. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, all the trouble started because a woman was disobedient and, and essentially, you know, inefficiently controlled.
0: I'm Melissa Hansen, a producer in Clark's communications office, and this is Challenge Change.
1: I was interested in these these women who were otherwise respectable, women who didn't have any any history of uh, trouble with the law. No history of illegal drug use or, you know, anything like that. These are married women who kill their children. Why? And I wondered how many other cases there were. And so this led me down a whole rabbit hole. But ultimately, I I sort of broadened out to look at uh, kind of popular representations of domestic violence more broadly. Women who killed their husbands were kind of a big source of anxiety in early modern England, which is fascinating because there's not a statistical uptick in wives killing their husbands in Elizabethan and Jacobean England, but there is a real uptick in representations of it. And when there are real instances of it, they get a lot of press. I'm very interested in the way that these kinds of crimes are portrayed in the the popular media, in the press. Nowadays, you know, obviously there's way more options than than woodcuts and pamphlets and ballads.
0: Because she's researched the portrayal of domestic violence, Diane knew what kind of public reaction to expect when the press began reporting on Lindsay Clancy and the deaths of her children in Massachusetts just a few weeks ago. Though these deaths happened roughly 400 years after Margaret Vincent killed her children in England, and about 22 years after Andrea Yates killed her children in Houston, Diane knew social media comment sections would include some of the same language used before. When I first heard the
1: story, I
0: said to my partner, cue
1: the pitchforks. If you go on any news story about this case, or, you know, social media, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, and look at the comments, they fall pretty evenly along two lines. This is a woman who was suffering from inadequately treated mental illness and didn't get the help that she needed, and this is just a a tragedy versus she's a monster, she planned it, she didn't want her kids, she didn't deserve to have children, you know, it's, it's, always, it's always the same. When it's a mother, it really stirs people up in a way that it doesn't when it's a father. It's much more often when a mother kills her children that she plans to kill herself as well. She isn't usually doing because she wants to run off somewhere or start a new life. Um, Not never, but usually not. Usually mothers kill their children for what they think is a good reason, whether they're trying to save them, whether they, they want to kill themselves and they don't want their children left behind without them. They usually do it for reasons that are putatively in the child's interest. Whereas, sadly, men do tend to take out the wife and the children or want to run off with somebody else or cash in on insurance or things like that. It's it's unfortunate. It's circumstantial but compelling. This Duxbury case has really got people stirred up in the comment sections of reputable news sources and on places like like social media. And it's going to be very interesting to see what happens because the prosecution is absolutely going for a narrative in which she planned it and should be held accountable for her actions. And her defense is clearly going to go with a mental health defense. It's also interesting to think in terms of what a difference 20 plus years make because there's so much rhetoric around postpartum depression and psychosis nowadays like a lot more sympathy and a lot more pressure being brought to bear on the way mental health services fail postpartum women in our culture and i think that's a really important conversation The outcry around the treatment that Lindsay Clancy's been getting in the press and the push to raise consciousness about postpartum depression and psychosis at a sort of grassroots level is impressive, I think. This is a bigger story than Lindsay Clancy, right?
0: These sad stories raise questions about mental health care and the way women are viewed and treated during pregnancy and postpartum.
1: Just think about the rhetoric of pregnancy versus postpartum. When a woman is pregnant, she is culturally valorized. She's carrying precious life, right? She's got precious cargo on board. Your body is absolutely public when you're pregnant. Suddenly, strangers feel like they get to touch you in an elevator. They ask you when you're due. They ask you how much weight you've gained. They ask you if you're going to breastfeed. Women's bodies are always objectified. And I think anyone who identifies as a woman will attest to that. But a pregnant body is really public property in a a new and special kind of a way. The minute the baby is born, no one cares about you anymore, culturally. It's all about the baby then. I have three children of my own, and I'm fortunate that I never suffered from postpartum depression. But I do remember feeling sad certainly feeling overwhelmed and exhausted, you know, you don't, you're not sleeping, your body's just been through this tremendous ordeal, if you didn't have sufficient support, it would be hard enough. But if you were also suffering from, you know, a chemical imbalance, if your depression was shading over to the point where you're having auditory hallucinations or visual hallucinations or paranoia. Crippling anxiety about, you know, something terrible happening to you or something terrible happening to the baby, you can see how these things happen. Before there was language for it, it it looked like someone was just mad, whatever that means. That's a broad umbrella term, right? Or potentially something diabolical. I dare say there are people nowadays who probably still think that, you know, one way or another, The end result winds up being the same because this woman didn't get whatever the help was that she needed, and the end result is this tragedy. Nobody's asking, what could help prevent these kinds of things from happening? How do we meet the needs of mothers who are struggling?
0: The public tends to stay glued to headlines about tragic cases like these. And true crime TV and novels are popular, particularly among women. Diane's research has helped her develop a theory about the draw of these horrific stories.
1: We're absolutely terrified of it and we're always deeply attracted to and fascinated by things that frighten us. We're not afraid that these things are going to happen to us. We're afraid that we are capable of committing these kinds of crimes. And I think this is particularly the case with murderous or infanticidal mothers. Most mothers never do a thing like that and would never consider doing a thing like that. But some do. And that's terrifying. There are no monsters. There's no such thing as a monster. Anyone who commits a terrible crime is just a human being. When someone commits a crime like this we can't look away but we also are desperate to distance ourselves from it. To say "All right, this person did this unthinkable thing. I would never do that. We need to lay that flattering unction to our souls that we are incapable of committing the kinds of crimes that you know we can't look away from. People have always eaten this stuff up. I mean, they're standing in the playhouse in Shakespeare's day, watching Alice Arden have her husband murdered. The theater is catharsis, right? We have the purging of pity and terror, we're, we're frightened, we're horrified, we're disgusted. But we're also titillated.
0: Next semester, Diane is teaching a class on early modern popular representations of true crime. To learn more about English at Clark, visit clarku.edu departments English. Challenge Change is produced by Andrew Hart and Melissa Hansen for Clark University. Find other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: One, two, three.